Podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Travis. We're Southern Men, de-reconstructing the South. Well, we are here together today. We're going to do another episode of the Confederate Veteran. This is going to be the March 1980, or, oop, 19, 1893. <laughs> I am 100 1893 uh, uh number three of volume one so so we we kind of pulled from it uh, a little bit in one of our previous episodes uh where we're talking about women from scripture and uh we're, we might hit on that a little bit more but there was a lot more that in this uh particular art you know um magazine that we wanted to cover uh one, one of the first ones being and it's like the uh the second article in here was the uh the Ku Klux Klan um we can it's just a paragraph we can go ahead and read it and i kind of want to you know um talk about the clan a little bit uh the good the bad and the ugly um so without further ado although forgotten now except at the side of the frightful name the ku klux klan was one of the most extraordinary organizations in history it went out of life as it came into it shrouded in the deepest mysteries its members would not disclose its secrets others could not the story was published in the century about 10 years ago and it appeared in nashville in book form in 1884 it is a small book 116 pages large print at 50 cents i have secured any wanted of the few hundreds left at 10 cents each subscribers to the confederate veterans can have it for that postage three cents um, so he kind of, he kind of, you know, alludes to the fact that this was a good organization when it first started. And, um, I, I would lend to agree with that, especially after reading some of, um, Nathan Bedford Forrest's, uh, biographies at the end of it, where, you know, it talks about how he joined the clan. Um, not necessarily a founder, but one of the founding members. Uh, I think that, having Bedford Forrest in there really gave the first introduction of the Klan some credibility. Um, later iterations of the Klan, it just slowly went down. Well, I wouldn't even say slowly went downhill. It just took a nosedive, uh, especially around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, if We surmised that the first uh, or the second iteration of the Klan was a psyop, and the third one is just absolutely a glow fest. And um, but the the first iteration I think was actually a good thing, especially for people of the South, because while they were, um, how shall I put this? They were dis they were a disenfranchised people. They were being um molested and um and and taken advantage of by 
the occupation of federal federal troops and also by uh freed slaves they um just absolutely um decimating you know the the white population and so it was a, it was a needed vigilante group whatever we can say about vigilantism is you know my my opinion of vigilantism is this is that sometimes it's needed but it's not necessarily a um a true good if that makes sense the the while it has while it can be good it's never an ultimate good yeah so i kind of look at this a little differently because the history of justice in the in the west has been from a predominantly English mindset. Um, and, you know, a lot of this comes from even older traditions, even going back to the Romans. And what we would term vigilantism today uh, was usually the community just defending itself. So every member of the community, especially family leaders, would be able to defend their home and their neighbor's home from invasion or uh, violation. And so what we have today is this liability culture where if you go in and you stop a crime, you'll, you're punishable for whatever happens to the criminal. You have all these protections against, for the criminal instead of prioritizing the protection of the people who are actually maintaining and supporting and a part of the community. So... Um, vigilantism with big air quotes here, I think it's a lot more defensible, um, especially when you go back to the whole call to arms mindset. You know, if there was a war coming up to a village, the village sheriff would, you know, present a call to arms, and every man of fighting age would be deputized, and that was how they went to war. Um, and you know the blacksmith made sure that everybody in the in the community was already furnished with materials so long as they could pay for them or they could trade or barter for them. Um, but you know everybody had you know a bow, especially in the English tradition, where the king required everybody to have a long bow. And then they had some kind of other weapon, even if it was their sledgehammer. That they... um, the original KKK was kind of a throwback to that, where we have an invading force that's settling in our land, and they're disenfranchising us. And so we're not going to be disenfranchised. We can't go through the proper modes of power to maintain our enfranchisement, then we're going to use the older ways, so to speak. Well, I was talking about this this weekend, or not this weekend, but this week, and... um we were got on the topic of lynchings and and how lynchings are sometimes good. I'm yep. not going to say they're always good, but they are sometimes good. And and it's they're good when the civil magistrate does not follow out their due diligence. So take Reconstruction in the South, first Reconstruction. You know there was women being raped, there was murder. You know, but if you dare touch, you know, a freed slave then you're just the worst person in the world. Right. Right. You and you had no civil recourse against these people because the the quote unquote magistrates during Reconstruction would not enforce the laws 
that God had ordained for him to enforce. Uh, I think one of the best examples that you know everybody can can think of right now is the execution of Leo Frank. Uh, people will call it a, a lynching, but it wasn't a lynching because it had the court's backing behind it. Right. Uh, yeah, for a little backstory, Leo Frank he um, he uh, raped and murdered little Mary Fagan. Uh, is it Fagan or Flagan? I think it's Fagan. I, I can't remember. Anyways, he raped and murdered a little girl, and then he tried to blame the the uh, the black night watchman for it. Well, they obviously knew that that wasn't the case. Um, so he was Leo Frank was tried by a jury of his peers, and then because of some business dealings, the governor of the state of Georgia uh, actually tried to lessen his sentence. Not pardon him, just lessen his sentence. And the people of the community said, no, we're not going to let that happen. So they drug him from a jail cell and they hung him by the neck until dead. Totally justified, by the way. I mean, a jury of your peers hangs, you know, sentences you to death. That's your sentence. And why should the governor interfere with something like that? Well, um, and that gets to the root. You know, what are the real roots of power? Do, do the real roots of power come from? or from the people who make the possible and so even in that situation you're seeing this fight between the institution because it's got business dealings with this guy doesn't want to let this guy go or doesn't want to let this guy get what due justice he should get as opposed to um, the people who are demanding justice now what we have today is that we won't demand justice right and uh, even when the the civil magistrate refuses to do its job, we won't. We'll just sit back and let things happen because that's well, that's not my job. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, I, I I realize how that comes across with me talking, and you know, I'm going to be accused of a lot of things probably. Uh, but the community needs to stop these things, and what happens is vigilantes are people who see this bad thing happening. And they go to stop the bad thing. And a lot of times the, the people will let these people go or they'll help them or they'll feed them and clothe them. And um, the federal government has such harsh penalties for aiding and abetting a criminal, you know, someone who would stop up a, a, another criminal like that. Um, but vigilantes are included in that. So even if real justice is is having this other guy stopped um you have to wait for them to do it so that that's kind of a uh i would say that it, there's a defense for vigilantism when the when the civil government refuses to do its job yeah um and i'll even go this far um i think i think a lot of what you saw in the mafia was that where you know, we there's a lot of things that the mafia did wrong. You know, they they did a lot of things, especially when they started getting into uh, the drug trade and you know human trafficking. Um, but especially when they started off, a lot of it was, you know, well this guy wronged my family and I can't get justice for it. And they provided that service to the people who were in their community. It was it was the Italian community. It was Italians looking out for Italians. Yeah. Um, and that got turned into this business empire as opposed to a family doing business for the patrons of his family. 
In in all honesty, I mean, something like that would be, you know, would be the Anglo way to do it. I mean, if we lived in such a small community that we actually knew most of the people, then we would elect, you know, the mafia boss would just be the sheriff, right? And you didn't have a bunch of rootless people in your community. Yeah, right. Um, so, but, but I mean, while, you know, whenever I'm saying that, I don't think that vigilantism is the moral good. I, I don't think it's the ideal that we should strive for, but. It, no, I, I get it, what you're saying. Yeah, it, and just, it's, it's a, it's a violation of the law in a technical sense. But then in another sense, it's going back to the old, more secure and stable law. Right. Where justice needs to be performed. And if the, the authorities refuse to do it. And it's the man who steps up to do that uh, is in the right. Well, think about in uh, in the book of like, um, say, Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy when they talk about sanctuary cities. Mm-hmm. You know, you accidentally kill somebody, you flee to that city so that you're safe from the the avenger of blood. Yep. Scripture never condemns the avenger of blood. Right. So why should why should we can I mean, that that's by definition vigilantism and and you had to be gone and, until the high priest of that area was dead yeah well, which everybody thinks oh well you can just go to the city and get away with it well that's basically like you're you're in an open air prison essentially yeah, uh, cuz you cannot leave that city for until you know that priest dies and usually means you got to go and set up shop and live there yeah um you're not coming back to say right um, unless you're, there's a huge age disparity between you and this other guy. You're not coming back. You, know? <laughs> you, you move there, the high priest dies within the year, then you move back. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're that fortunate, um, or that ballsy or that ballsy, uh, cause I mean, the community might not want. Yeah. I mean, there's not, um, now they did think a little bit differently of things back in the day because it had much more to do with your family ties than it had to do with anything else. Um, so there's, there's some differences there, but I think, I think the core of it's the same. Um, I think there's a lot of honorable, uh, desires and intents with the original Ku Klux Klan. Um, I think that, um, I also think it was a bunch of juveniles doing this. Um, and and I don't mean that disparagingly, um, you know, a lot of, the stuff that you see or hear about, um, you know, they they would wear the white clothes came from them being the ghosts of Confederate soldiers. And they would take big buckets of water and act like they're drinking it, but pour it into this big satchel in their stomach and say, mm, it sure is hot in hell. And they would do it to scare black people and Yankees because <laughs> it was funny. And, you know, it, stuff like that is functionally harmless because they're 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 pulling pranks on people and it's it's not you know they they would be in their white robes riding on a horse through the middle of town you know you know screeching really loudly because it would scare people and they're not hurting anybody they're not really trying to run anybody off they're just acting foolish and there's there's a a condemnation that you have that there's immaturity involved in that um but in another sense it's like you know my kids do that to one another all the time they'll spook each other they'll do things to aggravate one another and 
it really doesn't have to be anything more than that. Um, now, you know, second and third iterations of the KKK became much more malicious and militant, which was not the original intent. Um, so I, I would see the original KKK as something like the Proud Boys, where you know, Proud Boys, you know, the, the, the hazing that you have to go through to get into the Proud Boys is you're going to sit in the middle of a, a crowd of guys and get punched while you name your five favorite breakfast cereals. It's that kind of dumb things that guys do anyways that's institutionalized, big air quotes here, into this organization. And they go out, they have political action or whatever, um, but they're, they're just having fun. They're guys who are basically drinking buddies. Um, the all of the creators of of the uh, the Proud Boys will tell you the same thing. Enrique, um, whatever his last name is, I can't remember his last name. Torino um, or something. like yeah, that? Yeah, something of that nature. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a Mexican name. Yeah, um, definitely not human. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and. Um, What's his name? Gavin McGinnis. Gavin McGinnis. And Gavin McGinnis. He's Canadian. Yeah. Barely human. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they'll tell you the same thing. I mean, it was just drinking buddies getting together who are unapologetic about you know, the West is best. Right? They're Western chauvinists. Um, and, you know, your Gavin McGinnis is not exactly a right-leaning feller. No. Um, I don't know how many of you guys know about Gavin. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, but he's not exactly the most right-leaning individual. He's the um, founder of Vice, so right. And and to protest against the, you know, rejection of gay marriage, he went and made out with Milo Yiannopoulos, front steps of the Capitol. So who's now no longer gay or something like that? He says so. Anyways, uh, he still talks kind of gay. Well, that's yeah. just the British accent. Yeah. <laughs> Not to make the same joke. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's it, it's interesting because the history of this stuff is a lot less straightforward. Hmm. Um, there's a lot more details that you have to go into. Well, I mean, you know, when you say that the, uh, the, the second and third iterations were a lot more malicious and, and militant, um, I don't think the first one was that the first iteration of the clan was even born out of hate. No, it, uh, I, it was born out of a love of my people, my family, my my right. my locale, the people that I fought for. And then I th I think the the second and third you could argue was was definitely more born out of hate. Like there wasn't a whole lot of positive vision. It was more of we don't want these Italians here. We don't want these Jews here. We don't want these Greeks here, you know? Right. There's the 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 difference here in, in what we would advocate here on our podcast is much more of a positive vision. Don't do what you're doing because you hate other people. Do what you're doing because it's good for you. And there there comes a point where conflict is inevitable at some point because the, the powers that be are at war with us because they hate the way that we think about them. There's going to be conflict, but that conflict can't be born out of a hatred for the other side. And so what we've tried to do from the beginning of this podcast is, you know, we've got a Southern podcast and we started about the family. Um, 
we we started our podcast talking about what do we need to do better and i see i see families failing in the south i see families disintegrating in the south and we don't think about family anymore we think about how much money we can make the the value of of the person that is with you and lives next to you has to do with how much money they make and not to do with well this is part of my family they are part of my people and i need to take care of my people um and i that needs to change before we're going to have any kind of progress you know, the technology is a secondary issue the um even the public policy is a secondary issue if our people don't value the right things if they don't if they don't have a real love of their own people and it's just born out of a hatred of what the yankees did to us and you're we're not going to get anywhere we're going to that that hatred is going to destroy us mhm and i and i kind of wonder what um what what a new clan would look like like if we were to start something like the first iteration of the clan we don't want something like the second or third we don't want to march through washington and um one of the ironic things is is that something that i just thought of was in california during the um i think it was the, the 40s maybe 50s there was more clan members in california than all of the south but yet the South gets blamed for all of the hateful racism and bigotry and I mean all the lynchings and hangings primarily took took place up north. Yeah. Like there's a few that I always bring up, Emmett Till being the one that they slap on the front of everything. Yeah, well from what I understand he well, never mind. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. The, the point I'm getting at is the, the 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 majority of all of the the violent activity has not happened in the South. Right. It's happened up north, or it's happened in the West. Well, I mean, think about what happened uh, after the war. I mean, when all these all these freed slaves go to um go to Kansas, you know, the Kansas the ones that wanted the slaves to be free. Right. You know, they didn't want them in the they they wanted them free. They just didn't want them there. Right. So uh, they drove them out violently from Kansas. So, okay, well, so you don't really believe in what you're what you're saying? No, I don't. <laughs> you're the real racist, right? Right, and it's <laughs> it's well, and and this is, you know, forgive me for all the people out there who would disagree with me, but this just sounds like more Yankee nonsense. Oh, I mean, it is. Um, you know, the 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 North, the Yankees, since before the war even, have had the same, you know, mo. They blame the South for something that they're already doing and then attack us because we're, quote-unquote, doing this thing. Yeah. Um, slavery was just an excuse for them to get power. Um, and then they talk about how racist we are now. Um, you know, going all the way back to even, you know, Jonathan Edwards got kicked out of his church because he wanted to baptize Native Americans. Um, even today, I had a, I had a friend of mine from, from uh, Jersey and she came down here she was going to our schools and she said uh to us that she thought she would be put in a corner because she's mixed and because she doesn't really fit in with one category of people and she had friends from all the different groups of people down here in the south like the preps and the, and the the gamers and the goths and they were all friends with her and she's like i was really surprised because up north didn't fit in with any of the crowds and there were hard barriers to entry so she was she was black and puerto rican and she didn't fit in with the black group because the black group she's too puerto rican for them 
didn't fit in, fit in with the Puerto Ricans because she's too black. And he was kind of this mix of nerd and goth, and those two groups fought with one another too. Down here, we're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking of West Side Story. Yes, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but that that carries on even, you know, when they go... You hear about uh, Google lecturing us about all their racism, and they don't they don't let a whole lot of blacks get into upper management in Google. No, uh, uh, you have to be Indian. Yeah, well, yeah, um, you have to be able to shit in the street. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I was trying to let you deadpan that one, but it didn't work. Um, but it's that it's that kind of thing where. You know, and and I'm not and I'm not doing well. They're the real racists. Uh, I, I'm saying that you can't sit there and accuse everybody else of what you're doing, which is exactly what they do. Right. They'll do something, and it's not a principled stance. You know, there's a lot of people in the South. Oh, I want separation between the black community and the white community, but it's based on I think we're of different family members, family groups, and we need the separation because of that. Just don't do things the same way. I mean, I, I want separation because I don't seem, think they season their food properly. But that that's, that's you know, almost a good reason. <laughs> yeah, it is a good reason. I mean, um, you know, they don't put near enough. Of course, they always say, oh, white people don't season their food. We conquered the world to season our food, okay? We literally created the British Empire to get seasoned. Mayo. No, they don't. No, they don't. They don't have any of that Alabama white sauce. That's right. But anyways, um. So we were talking last night. I don't know if you caught it in the uh, in the in the uh, wardrobe chat about um, how we're the we're, we're the real tolerance. You know how how yeah. all the racist groups that we're in. We have Mexicans. We have we have uh, Italians. We we have you know um, Indians. We, we have Me I already said Mexicans. Oh, we have blacks. We have all these we other have both kinds of Mexicans. Yes, both <laughs> kinds of Mexicans. And um, and. It, but, you know, the right has always been the more tolerant of both sides of the group. Well, yeah. And I think that really is our downfall because we don't have a we don't have a common a common ethnos, not not even just like an ethnicity, but we don't have a common core nationality. We're we're kind of just like everything from here and we're just trying to and it's not a not always a bad thing. Right. I think that. You know, take the take the, the the southern black and the southern white. We're two different people, but we do share a common, you know, a common bond. Yeah, and it, we can live together. But but the right just seems to always want to grasp everything and pull it in. Like yeah, we have someone like Bruce Jenner bringing them into the right wing, and and he's apparently right wing now. We're we're just gonna let him get away with this. You know, we're not going to call him out on his crap. Right. Well, I think that's I think that's the Yankee direction that's been well, given is. the right. Um, you know, Dabney called this out where, you know, the next year they're going to they're going to avidly protest that they've always been for trans rights. You know, and everybody knows it's a lie. Um, but the people on the right just they're going to accept it because well, what else are we gonna do? Right, we have we have to join in with these people. We have to be more loving. We have to be more loving, yeah. Um, instead of going back to the original traditions, 
And honestly, what we're going to have to do is admit that for the last 150 years, we've been thinking about politics wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to come back and rework a lot of stuff that we thought was right. Like, right. we're going to have to get rid of our heroes. We're going to get like someone like Reagan. Reagan's we're going to give him up. Yeah. yeah. And that's a dirty word in, in the yeah. right. Uh, Reagan's just a hero because he was a hero. Yeah. Uh, and and you know in in Reagan's defense, I think he did some things that were good. I think he put forward a good meme. Um, the problem, though, is that the realities of politics got in the way of his meme. And when you when you get down into the 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 granular aspects of his presidency, just as when you get through any of these other guys, um, you know, in in the dissonant spheres, both left and right. JFK is kind of like this hero. Mm -hmm. But JFK did some really stupid things. Yes. And he did some things that would be appalling. And we kind of let those bad things go because, you know, well, he, he said something about the spookies. Yeah. And, and he potentially died because he said something about the spookies. Well, okay. That makes him a hero in one sense, but you can't forget about all the bad things he did either. Still a degenerate. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I guess really the, the, the crux here is that we, we want to live the meme, but the meme's not real mm -hmm. and it can't actually translate into reality. So, uh, you know, kind of wrapping this whole thing up, you know, we're, we're talking about the clan here. You have to deal with what really happened. And there's a, there's a, there's a place for myth. There's a place for uh, heroes in that mythic sense. Um, but we have to hold the two positions that, yes, this is a heroic thing. Yes, this is a good thing. But also there's a, there's a reality that's a lot more gray. And so the, the mature thing is being able to hold the myth while understanding the reality. Oh, I want to add one more thing and then we can move on to, uh, to something else. And that's, uh, I think there's I think there's a male desire to really want to um be a part of something like you know I, yeah. I'm I'm thinking of you know Nathan Bedford Forrest's clan and I'm like I would have loved to join that you know and, and that that's that's what that's the same drive that's driving people to join the Proud Boys driving people to join um uh League of the South driving even driving people to today to still join you know whatever's left of the clan um and i we I mean we really do need something like that but the thing is is where does who do we trust to actually start something like i'm not going to start i'm not going to join something like the proud boys right now because you know that enrique fellow what's his name um, uh, yeah he's a big fed guy. yeah he's a he's a fed I mean, I'm not going to join something with a Fed in it. All let's, Feds are let's faggots. Be, let's be exactly clear here. He was a federal informant at some point in the past who has maintained contact with his federal officer. Um, which still streams to me, once a Fed, always a Fed. I, well, I'm agreeing with you. I but just, yeah, I we just don't, don't want to accuse him of things that, uh, that we don't know. Right. But I, I don't trust that. Right. Um, I, th I think if you willingly talk to the Feds, on more than just like say reporting a crime right you know like oh yeah this this guy you know anyways you know just reporting a crime i don't think i can trust you i do not trust feds i don't trust people that talk to feds 
especially if you're going to claim to be a, have a Southern identity, we do not go to the enemy with our problems. Right. Um, well, and there's certain things that I think are wise to do. I think Torba is wise in this respect. He sees somebody engaged in criminal activity. I mean, like real criminal yeah. activity, not selling raw milk. Uh, on Gab, he'll take that to the feds. Yep. Um, you have a legal responsibility to do that. That's that's in the law. That's within the law. That's a legitimate thing to do to begin with, because you want to stop evil things from happening. But you know, a lot of that's misused today. Uh, so that's not the same thing as being a federal informant. No. And what we're talking about with Enrique is he was actually doing spooky stuff. Yeah. And and also the feds are not your therapist. Don't go there and have hour sessions weekly with them just because you can't afford a therapist. You find somebody <laughs> that find out that somebody's a fed, you should tell them to repent and believe. That's right. Because they're probably pagans. Yep. Anyways, but <laughs> here at the Dixie Poles Podcast, we reject any and all federal officers. Uh so we're back. Um we had to take kind of a hiatus between the last subject and the next one because we ran out of time, so we're no longer IRL uh, recording. Uh, that's why the audio may have changed a uh, hair. But um, well, actually, we we ran out of time, but also the uh, the headset died, so there was that. Um, anyways, uh, we're we're gonna get it off on on the next topic, which is the Annabellum Southern Woman. We we actually covered a lot of this within our um our a woman from Scripture episode um two episodes back and um so we're not going to dwell on it a whole lot but i just kind of wanted to hit on a few things and and that was the southern woman is a complete 180 from the average woman that we see today in, in all honesty i mean because these women were were caretakers of the house like and this wasn't just you know they cook clothe you know did the did the laundry they sent the kids off to school or you know, if you're at home educating, you know, educating the children out right there, this was, you know, th this lady was the, the, the midwife for the plantation. This lady was, you know, the, the, the discipliner of the kids when the, when the father was out in the field, this, this lady was managing the books. She was managing, you know, particular fields, um, managing, uh, you know, managing the household in such a way that, we're not used to seeing today, like making sure there was enough food for the winter, uh, making sure that all meals were prepped, whether or not she actually cooked or not, because typically the, the Southern woman would have had, um, had slaves to be cooking for them or, you know, the, the regular yeoman's wife, you know, she was taking care of the, uh, the cooking and, and, um, it, it was a lot more involved and a lot more responsibilities than, most women have today and uh, i think a lot of that's by design you know we, we couldn't just go out to walmart and buy the month's worth of groceries no you had to like grow the groceries and what you did get from town you probably only got from town like oh i don't know once every three months or so is when you'd ride into town to get your dry goods but um a few of them is you know like uh, I, think, I think we covered how the uh, the particular one was was this woman, the old-fashioned virtues and taste, how the woman was, you know, not only a caretaker for her family, but also the surrounding families that might have needed it, um, a caretaker for the slaves, uh, literally nursing slaves back to health. Um, and uh, let's see. 
this was back when uh, being a mistress of the home uh, had nothing to do with being a house whore. It had to do with being a caretaker of the home. Yeah, yeah. When you said mistress, I, I kind of was taken aback for a second until you explained yourself. I'm like, um, I don't think the southern woman was a mistress. Yeah, uh, well, they were married. Well, I mean, they would have been called a mistress of the home, but it didn't mean that they were a household. It meant they were, you know, the the ruler of the home. Basically, what that right. meant. Um, the the husband would delegate the authority of the home to them, and he would take the domain of the outside and go and conquer and bring back home. You know the way God designed it. One of the interesting things, um, and, and it's under the under the um, section about women, and it was the truth about whippings and sailings, and um, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but we we often, you know, we're we're grown up into a grown up, we are raised into a culture where we're taught that all, you know, all slaves were whipped, and um, it really goes into it, you know, firsthand accounts of. No whippings were reserved for stealing and other crimes. Um, you just didn't whip a whip a slave because they were lazy. Um, you know, as we see in something like I've never seen the movie, but something like Roots or or these others. Um, Django. I think. Yeah, the Django. Yeah, if we want to call that historical fiction, it's just fiction. Yeah, no, it I is mean, a really it's... good movie, by the way. Uh, it's well shot. Um, the whole thing makes me angry because it's just it's just there to, you know, dis disparage the the southern man. That is true, but uh, DiCaprio's character was was kind of a beast. You know, he was probably yes, I know he was making fun of the South, but he's he's that he's that over uh over charismatic southern gentleman everybody he's that meme of the southern gentleman everyone likes to make fun of you know yeah. just the, the downright ruthless person well it, it's it's kind of funny because uh I, you know he's he's ironically owned by the south like we'll just accept accept the the meme you know yeah uh well, i mean if you're gonna keep calling us that then the hell with it we're gonna embrace it right pretty much yeah but um but yeah, I mean the, the whole the whole whippings and stuff. It, it, yes, it it happened, and I'm sure on the bigger plantations, the more ruthless plantations, it happened a lot more. I I understand, like I'm aware of the fact not every slaveholder was a was a Jefferson Davis or a or a Robert E. Lee or a Calhoun. Uh, there was some very very bad things wrong with that system, but it typically wasn't like that like the vast majority it was not like that at all i mean because uh what what's his name uh big is it big john uh from gone with the wind what's his name um the the, the big slave that that scarlet that, that defends scarlet towards the end i can't know? remember it's been a minute since i read it well if if you've seen the movie or you read the book you know who you're who i'm talking about yeah but he uh he, he says he he was up north talking with a bunch of uh a bunch of Yankees and, and they kept wanting to ask about how he got whipped. And he's like, M M Mr. Uh, I forgot the father's name flip. <laughs> oh, uh, he, he, he would say that, Oh, Mr. Mr. Oh, he never whipped me. Cause he, he says I was a expensive nigga. 
<laughs> I think that was just absolute. <laughs> like, why, why, you know, think about it. If, you, if you're looking at slaves as an investment um, of proper, you know, of uh, investment of wealth, why would you damage that property, right? Like, that doesn't make a lick of sense. Um, but, anyways, it's, I, I digress off of that subject. We're going to have to have a, uh, an episode about slavery at some point. Yeah, we, we've been threatening it for a while. I just, hey, that that's going to take a lot to prepare, and we've got to be on our P's and Q's to not be taken out of context. We'll, we'll still be taken out of context, but at least we'll have evidence to back up what we're actually saying. Right. So this next segment is uh, pretty interesting. It's, it's called The Gray and the Blue. If y'all remember a few episodes of the Confederate Veteran, Confederate Veteran ago, we read a poem called We Drank from the Same Canteen. Um, and this little story here um, is very similar to that, that poem. Uh, and I think it um, I think it, it bears being read. So um, this was during the Battle of Chickamauga. Uh, there were two men on either side. I'm going to read a little portion of this here. Um, early on Saturday morning, preparations were made for the terrible conflict soon to follow. As the column wheeled in a line, I filled my canteen with water, replenished my stock of ammunition, and was soon ready for the word forward. I saw that grand patriot, true, statement, state, true statesman, and brave commander, Roger Q. Mills, hurrying to and fro among his soldiers, giving them words of encouragement as well as of command. My company was soon ordered out with the skirmishers, and, we're, and we were soon engaged in rambling fire. The Federal skirmishers soon gave way before us, leaving here and there a dead or wounded comrade. I discovered immediately in front of me a soldier dressed in blue, prostrate and attempting to rise. He, turns, he turned his eyes towards me and gave the Masonic sign of distress and asked me for water. Hastily placed his head on his knapsack, gave him my canteen of water, and ran forward to join my company. The enemy was reinforced, and we were driven back over the same ground. Again, I saw the wounded Federal soldier and stooped over him a moment to hear what he might say. As near as I remember, these were his words. Brother, something tells me that we will live through this battle, and we will someday meet again. I clasped his hand and hastily joined my command. My fellow soldiers furnished me water during that fearful day, and at night we rested where water was plentiful. All know how the battle terminated and the result of the war. Afterward, I made my way to Texas, married, and began again anew the, life, the battle of life. I often thought of my brother in blue, but twenty years passed before I heard of him. One day, while perusing a newspaper, my eyes fell upon the following item. If the Confederate soldier belonging to the Company A of the 15th Texas, who gave a wounded Federal soldier a canteen of water during the Battle of Chickamauga, will write me at Hotel New Orleans, he will learn something of interest to him. John Randolph. I wrote immediately and received a telegram to go to New Orleans at once. I had had, I had, had a, a hard struggle in life and could not well afford to spare the time or the money necessary for the trip. But upon reflection, I, would de I determined to go. Indeed, I felt it was my duty to obey the summons, and after hasty preparations, I borrowed the expense money and went to New Orleans. I arrived at the hotel after 2 o'clock, 
registered, and inquired for Randolph. The clerk informed me that such a man was there, but can but confined to his room and in the last stages of consumption. I asked to be shown to this man. I was met at the, at the door by a middle-aged gentleman who invited me into the room. On the bed, a gray-haired man was reclining, who at my approach held out his hand and scrutinized my features intently. I was invited to seat, and the sick man re requested me to relate the circumstance hitherto mentioned, which I did. He listened intently, and when the narrative was concluded, he requested his companion bring from the wardrobe in the in the <clears throat> the wardrobe in the room a canteen. It was old and worn, but on the cover was plainly marked JWT T five Tex. I recognized it as the same that I had left with the wounded United States soldier during the Battle of Chickamauga. Is this your canteen? said the, the, the sick man inquired. I told him that it, that it once was mine, but I had given it to him. I now return your property, he said. And clasping my hand, he feebly ejaculated, My brother. For a few moments, all was quiet, and he introduced me to his companion as his older brother. He requested his brother to ring for the porter, and when he arrived, sent him with a message. In a short time, another person arrived, and my friend requested him to draw a draft in my favor on the bank for $10,000 and direct him to pay the same on presentation. When the banker had gone, my friend explained that he had prospered since the war and was now rich and could give me this amount without injustice to his older brother, already ha having already provided for him his only living relative. His brother approved the act, and when all was again quiet, my friend coughed feebly, closed his eyes, and slept the sleep that knows no waking. Without a struggle, the breath had left his body. We placed the remains in a metallic casket, and in charge of his brother, they were sent to Illinois for internment, there to sleep until the last great trump shall sound, and assemble the just and true, and one immense army under the blood-stained banner of Prince Emmanuel. I found this, not only did it did it link up with that poem that we read, but it was also a pretty touching story about how men on the opposite side of this conflict really didn't have ill will towards one another. They were, as far as they were concerned, brothers. And this generosity that they had, um, where one soldier gives him a, a canteen to make sure that he had some water, uh, even though he by rights, should have shot him. Um, I thought that was a pretty touching story from uh, from the events of the war. I think it's also interesting that he recognized the Masonic sign for distress. Um, yeah. I know a lot of Masons, they reunited after the war. And, uh, there was a lot of Masonic reunions uh, between the North and the South. And, um, I, I think it's, it's cool that there were th that kind of camaraderie, mm -hmm. uh, even that extended past just what side you fought for, you know, like you're a part of one order that, you know, transcends nations. Uh, right. I think that's pretty cool. And I know a lot of the churches were like that as well. I know they, they had denominational splits, but, um, you know, even, even amongst, uh, you know, Baptist or Presbyterians, there was a lot of um, camaraderie in Christ even after the war, and I, I, I appreciate that 
Um, because I think, uh, despite uh, all of the frustration and anger that's associated with the war, um, when it comes to the men on the ground, this was actually a a war between brothers, and I, I feel like sometimes that gets lost in the conversation. So, um. I think the next thing that I kind of wanted to hit on was um, there, there there was a okay so there, there, someone found a poem written on the back of a Confederate note and uh, well I'll just go ahead and read the uh, the first person accepted the author who sh- whoever read it was your gallant fellow citizen Captain A B Snell the commander of Claiborne Sharpshooters whose critici- whose criticisms were passed upon the lines before they were copied upon the note. I appended a correct copy. Uh, This is, I think, the fourth time within the last 20 years that this controversy has trenched upon your columns and good nature, but with the other occasions, this corrections were made by an outsider. So, so they found this, you know, this, these, um, these verses on the back of a Confederate note. They, they didn't know whose it was, but eventually it came out and it was, um, uh, S.A. Jonas. Uh, from Richmond, Virginia, actually, um, and and the lines for this as follows: It's one of the, it's another poem. I, I, I like hitting on the poems um, throughout. The, that's probably one of my favorite part of the entire Confederate veteran. Mm-hmm. But anyways, lines written on the back of a Confederate note, representing nothing on God's earth now, and not in the wars below it. As the pledge of a nation that's dead and gone, keep it, dear friend, and show it. Show it to those who will lend an ear to tell this trife can tell on of of a eh, of a liberty born of a patriot's dream of a storm what is oh of a storm cradle nation that fell too poor to possess the precious oars and too much of a stranger to borrow. We issue today our promise to pay and hope to redeem it on the morrow. The days rolled by and the weeks and weeks became years, but our coffins were empty still. Coin was so rare that the treasury'd quake if a dollar should drop in the till. But if the faith that was in us was strong indeed and our poverty we'd discern, and this little cheek represented the pay that our suffering veterans earned. We know that it had hardly a value in gold, yet as gold each soldier received it. It gazed in our eyes with a promise to pay, and each Southern patriot believed it. But our boys thought little of price or of pay, or of bills that were overdue. We knew it was bought. We knew if it bought us our bread today, it was the best our poor country could do. Keep it, it tells our history over, from the birth of the dream to its last, modest and born to the angel hope, like our hope of success at past. So, so... That they're talking about the, you know, obviously the banknote. The banknote itself was absolutely worthless. Like, you know, we can go on about Confederate gold, whether or not it made itself down to Mexico, whether or not it's still, you know, somewhere in Mobile Bay, that kind of thing. Um, but these Confederates, they got paid in Confederate notes. They didn't get paid in coinage. They didn't get paid in gold. They didn't get paid in silver. They got paid in worthless dollar bills. But, you know, and they weren't fighting for the money. 
they were they were fighting for the liberty to to live free and ha- on their own terms. So while while yeah the 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 money that they earned was worthless, it it was it was a bigger picture than just the money. You know? Right. Well they they were willing to put their faith in the in the nation that the money represented essentially. Yeah, I mean, kind of like what we do today. I mean, our our paper money's worthless, right? So, I mean, we uh, it's it, our our dollars is nothing but faith right now. <laughs> right, right, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we have faith in a money for a country that we don't really have faith in. Yeah, it's I don't I that's why I don't think the dollar is going to last very much longer. But that's a whole different topic of conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I want to, uh, as a, to kind of close this out, I want to read, uh, Prayer of the South. Uh, this one was by Reverend Father Ryan, who's the poet priest of the South. Um, and I, I did, I just want to read this cause I thought it was a an excellent little poem. My brow is bent beneath a heavy rod. My face is wan and white with many woes. But I will lift my poor chained hands to God. And for my children pray and for my foes. Beside the graves where thousands lowly lie. I kneel in weeping for each slaughtered son. I turn my gaze to my own sunny sky. And and pray, O Father, may thy will be done. My heart is filled with anguish deep and vast. My hopes are buried with my children's dust. My joys have fled, my tears are flowing fast. In whom save thee, our Father, shall I trust? I forgot thee, Father, long and oft, when I was happy, rich, and proud and free. But conquered now and crushed, I look aloft, and sorrow leads me, Father, back to thee. Amid the wrecks that mark the foeman's path, I kneel and wailing o'er my glory's gone. I still each thought of hate, each throb of wrath, and whisper, Father, let thy will be done. Pity me, Father of the desolate. Alas, my hurls are so to bear, so hard to bear. Look down in mercy on my wretched fate, and keep me, guard me, with thy loving care. Pity me, Father, for his holy sake, whose broken heart bled at the feet of grief. That hearts of earth, wherever they shall break, might go to his and find a sure relief. Ah me, how dark is this a brief eclipse? Or is that or is it that or is it night with no more morrow's sun? O Father, Father, with thy pale sad lips, and sadder heart I pray, thy will be done. My homes are joyless and a million mourn. Where many met in joy forever flown, whose hearts are light, are burdened now and lorn, where many smiled, but one is oft to mourn. And ah, the widow's wails, the orphan's cries, are mourning hymns and vesper chant to me, the groans of men and sounds of woman's sighs. Comingly, Father, with my prayer to thee. Beneath my feet, ten thousand children dead. Oh, how I loved each known and nameless one. 
Above their dust I, sh I bow my, crown my crownless head, and murmur, Father, still thy will be done. Ah, Father, thou didst deck... <clears throat> Ah, Father, thou didst deck thy, my own beloved land with all bright charms and beautiful and fair. But the bowmen came, and with ruthless hand spread ruin, wreck, and desolation there. Girdled with gloom of all my brightness shorn, and garmented with grief, I kiss, my, I kiss thy rod, and turn my face with tears all wet and worn to catch one smile of pity from my God. Around me blight, where all was bloom, and so much loss, alas, and nothing won, save this that I can lean on wreck and tomb, and weep and weeping, pray, thy will be done. And old tis hard to say, but tis so sweet. The words are bitter, but they hold a balm. The balm that heals the wounds of my defeat, and heals my and lulls my sorrows into holy calm. It is the prayer of prayers, and how it brings, when heard in heaven, peace and hope to me. When Jesus prayed it, did not angels' wings gleam mid the darkness of Gethsemane. My children, Father, thy forgiveness need. Alas, their hearts only have room for tears. Forgive them, Father, every wrongful deed, and every sin of those four bloody years and give them strength to bear their boundless woes, and from their hearts take every thought of hate, and while they climb their calvary with their cross, help them, O Father, to endure its weight. And for my dead, Father, may I pray, ah, signs, sighs them, ah, sighs may smooth, ah, sighs may soothe, but prayer shall soothe me more. I keep eternal watch above their clay, O rest their souls, my Father, I implore. Forgive my foes, they know not what they do. Forgive them all the tears they made me shed. Forgive them, though, my noblest sons they slew. And bless them, though, they curse my poor dead, my poor dear dead. And may my woes be each a carrier dove, with swift white wings that bathing in my tears, will bear thee, Father, all my prayers of love, and bring me peace in all my doubts and fears. Father, I kneel, mid ruin, wreck, and grave, a desert waste where all was erst so fair. And for my children and my foes I crave pity and pardon. Father, hear my prayer. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at SouthernRaisedBluegrass.com. God bless y'all.
Just a 